Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Welcome to part two of my conversation with homicide detective Dave Sweet. Um, when I was researching the Black Friday case, I was in touch with... Um, the police interpretation center there, and I noticed that at the, this was before COVID, of course, that you used to do an evenings with a homicide detective. Yeah. Do you still do? Is there any like are those going to come back? I don't know. Actually, I don't know. Uh, they've just recently uh, Youth Link is uh, mm-hmm. who it was offered through, and um, they just recently changed the executive director. Okay. And so I think that's a that'll depend on what direction they uh, want to go. But I do know that those adult-only events were uh, wildly successful yeah. uh, for the center, and uh, we raised uh, lots and lots of money for uh, youth prevention programs in the city oh, of Oh, that's great. No, I really like yeah. the, the youth link there, that, and they were the ones that um, were very helpful in putting that, that yeah. episode together. Yeah, I know they've been really great. What, what would you say is the best and the worst part of your job? Um. Boy, the best part of my job for sure is the service back to families. That's where I completely 100% thrive. So I like to think that over the years uh, that I've developed some very close relationships with families. And those relationships are like houses that I've built if I was a contractor. You know, policing is a funny thing because if you're an electrician, if you're a plumber, if you're a contractor, if you're whatever, you can drive down the road and say, you know, I did the asphalt on this road or I built that house over there or what have you, right? Police work's not like that. You don't get to see I finished anything. So the closest thing that you have are these relationships that you develop with people. Mm-hmm. And those become the houses that you built, if that makes any sense at all. And so for me, the number one best part has always been the service to those families 
and the relationships that I built with those families afterwards, um, sort of through a, you know, a long process. The worst part is maybe also has to do with relationships and it's the disappointing the other people in your life, mm. you know? And so, um, I think we've all had those scenarios where, um, we've felt bad, um, that we've been, we've upset somebody within our, within our little family units because we haven't been able to, you know, uh, be there right when they need us or not be able to answer the call exactly when they needed to talk to us or, um, you know, miss a special event or be late for a holiday. Um, yeah. So that is the sort of the best and worst. And they both, probably have to do with relationships. I kind of fell into all of this. I think the desire to be of service to people, probably at a fairly young age. I actually went to school to be a gym teacher or a phys ed teacher. I thought that'd be a pretty cool job. But I had this grandfather who was a police officer in New York. And he was 30 years older than my grandmother. And so, as a result, uh, I never knew the man. I mean, he was dead, dead by the yeah. time I was ever in the picture. And so, why this is important for my own is I became interested in policing while I was trying to learn about a man that I never knew, mm. even at a young age. You know, my mom had stored away these old newspaper articles about him and his old medals and his old badges and his old... You know, and it was through that process that I think I had an inkling that I also thought law enforcement would be interesting. It's weird because our paths, they change over time and the way we want to do things. But when I first started policing, I thought maybe working in a, as a community liaison officer or working in a school as a resource officer, those were kind of areas that I was interested in. But it was those first five or six years of development as a police officer that I started becoming more interested in sort of some of the more um, dark type crimes. Yeah. And so I was, I, I developed uh, an interest in um, uh, narcotics or drugs, trafficking and things of that nature. That's why I went into the, yeah drug unit and then um gangs were always interesting to me so uh and then um homicide just seemed like a natural fit from there mm -hmm. and uh yeah so i've been very lucky in the city of calgary people don't probably realize this but um like when i'm having a bad day i often think about this in our city of, what is it, where do you get, 1.2 million? Yeah, right there are currently uh, 18 homicide detectives in this city. There are more Calgary Flames in this city than there are homicide detectives. That's crazy. To be a hockey player that gets to play one game in the NHL, you have to be better than 85,000 other kids. Yeah. 
And there was a lot of people out there that would think what I'm doing is pretty fun. Yeah. Pretty incredible. And they're not wrong. Yeah. Um, it is. When I think of the statistic, I, it's unbelievable to think that I've been able to work in this line of work for as long as I've had, I've had, or I have, Mm -hmm. um, considering like what the actual chances of being one of 18 are, you know, big giant city. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, to crime junkies like myself, homicide detectives, you guys are like rock stars to us. Like, we're, right. like but but again, when we look at it, we think of the case all put together, right. neat and tidy or whatever. We're not thinking about the fact that so much of it is just footwork. It's footwork um, and talking to people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that some cases just they're hard to solve. Right. Not every case can be <laughs> solved, and people have to understand that. Yeah. JFK is still not solved. Have you ever had a case where you know who did it, but you just haven't been able to get the evidence or, uh, or maybe the case was dismissed on the technicality that just. Well, technicalities are pretty hard to come by when it comes to homicides, at least in the Canadian criminal justice system. I don't know one, the American one, but, um, because there's, uh, the technicality has to be so egregious. Um, for it not even to pass uh, a test under something called 24 is section 24 too. Mm-hmm. So basically if there's a, if there's a breach or a technicality that the evidence couldn't go in, I guess somebody could come, you know, get off on a technicality, but because it's homicide, almost everything will get in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Including the Mr. Big stings. Well, it depends. Like, I mean, uh, Mr. Big is a little bit different. They are now sort of almost considered to be, I, don't, I can't remember what the, the verbiage is, but they're almost considered to be unreasonable unless they can be proven to be reasonable, right? Like the onus is back on the crown to prove that the the um, the undercover operation was, was sort of done um in accordance to a number of rules that were outlined by a case called Hart. Yeah, so are they are they not doing them as often then as a result of that? Because they were really popular for a while. Well, and I, you know, I won't... Uh, um, undercover operations have always been part of um, homicide investigation. I think they probably always will be. Um, but there just have to be... We have to be very... I mean, I think in Calgary we've... We've been very good. Like when the heart decision came out, it really didn't affect business for us because I think we were doing a lot of the things that heart was discussing mm-hmm. prior, you know? And so, um, I think that they'll always still be available to us. Well, that's, that's good. Yeah. I'm, I'm always shocked and surprised that they work as well as they do. Yeah. You would think that they yeah. wouldn't, but then again, I'm looking at it from a person of normal societal norms. Totally. As opposed to, to somebody different. But um, yeah, and I, I, am, I'm, I haven't read the full heart case, but I know that there's certain criteria that they need to, to follow in order to be admissible, and that for the most yeah. part, they, they pretty much are because so much time and effort and. and research goes into them. They're not just spur of the moment. No, I mean, the big issue is the vulnerability of the accused person and then sort of the conduct of the officers and whether or not they're exploiting those vulnerabilities and how they're doing that, right? Mm. Have you ever gotten 
or wrong, like where you were sure you had the right guy? Oh man, that's a good. That's a great question. So, uh, have I ever knowingly been involved in a wrongful conviction of somebody? Like, have I ever been involved in a case where we've convicted somebody and then learned out later that it was a wrongful conviction? No. Um, have I been involved in cases where we had a theory that it was going to be A, and then through the course of the investigation, end up focusing on B? Yeah. That has happened several times. And some of us, some of our highest profile crimes actually began with the focus on an A. And then the investigation switching to a B. Yeah. Um, it's uh, um, so that does happen, and uh, but the, so there's a bunch of things that help safeguard that, and I and and I actually again I'll be proud to say it. I long gone are the days that you know a lonely detective goes out to a crime scene in the middle of the night with his fedora, sparks up a cigar, <laughs> yeah. standing under a street lamp, looking cool, and handles it all from the beginning to the middle to the end. Right. Long gone are those days. So we, everything that we do is done through a team approach. And teams are great because... Um, Collectively, as a group, there's a whole bunch of different opinions. Those opinions, we don't always jive with what each other is saying, which helps reduce the possibility of, say, tunnel vision, mm -hmm. which is an which is the bane of an investigation. It is the number one reason why people are wrongfully convicted, and so within our own investigative teams. Um, although we don't formally uh, designate the role to a, one particular person, there's a, on a team of eight, there's everybody in there takes turns being the devil's advocate on different things. And what the devil's advocate does is the challenges the thinking of the, at the moment mm -hmm. and forces the lead investigator to defend or justify certain decisions that they're making. And that process is really good because sometimes the primary investigator will listen to devil's advocate's position and change the course of their, their decision. Other times they'll stay the course. But uh, in both cases, the decision that they're making is being defended in a briefing room. So it doesn't have to be defended like mm -hmm. in a courtroom later. Like we've already gone through the yeah. process of almost challenging the idea. So it could be simple stuff. It could be like, well, do we need a warrant? No, we don't need a warrant. That was, I would say, yeah, actually we do need a warrant. And this is why. Probably going to say, well, you know, thank you for your advice on that. But I don't actually think in this particular case, we do need a warrant for these reasons. Reasons get spelled out. The justification is made. The argument is made. It makes sense to everybody else. And, we go in a direction where we don't do a warrant or vice versa. We do do the warrant. Because we work within the team, in teams, 
and we follow evidence, not theory, which is huge, mm-hmm. um, we reduce the amount, uh, the, the likelihood or the probability that we could uh, name the wrong guy. But we, we've had a few t- occasions for sure, I mean, over the years where we start, we settled on a, a thought in one way. And our evidence guided us away from that person and went to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So that has happened. To answer your question, yes, uh, we've got it not wrong. Yeah. But we've we've changed focuses in the past. Yeah. Um, started one way and went in a completely different direction afterwards. Hi, this is Ross, the host of Smells Like Humans, a show about interesting and quirky human behavior. We bring humor, empathy, and warmth to topics such as relationships, dating, work, self-compassion, weddings, phobias, aging parents, travel mishaps, death, and many more. Ever wonder what happens at a cuddle party? We talk about it. Free-range kids in restaurants? We've got some thoughts. Bedtime stories for adults? We're on it. Light, fun, unscripted conversation and personal stories. Please join us by clicking the link in the show notes. Um, the only other case I'm, I'm interested in around specifics is the Mar- Marks Mariani's murder. And like, from what I understand, Tyler is up for parole next year, isn't he? 2023? Just look to those things. No, no, I, no, I think he should be eligible for parole in June of 2021. And the reason I say that is, is that when somebody's arrested, the day that they're arrested and they're incarcerated is the day they're basically the parole. That's the countdown, right? That That's... starts there. Even if it's remand time. Like you don't go to remand for three years. They yeah. get sentenced on a life sentence and get 15 years. And that three years doesn't count. That three years counts to the fifteen yeah. years that you were sentenced. Well, do they count it as uh, a day for a day, or is it like a? a... I think it's a day, a uh, day and a half for a day. Based on that, I think he was brought into custody in June of uh, two thousand and eleven, and so that would mean that he re- and he pled guilty. He received a ten-year life sentence, but I don't know that either will get out on their first attempt. Some things that people don't probably aren't aware of, only 30% of people that apply for parole serving on a life sentence ever get a chance to spend one day outside of an institution. And although we attach the number... Yeah, we hear that all the time, 25 to life. And I think a lot of people think, well, does that what does that mean? Does that mean 25 right. or their life? No. Whichever comes first? No, it means... Um, so I'll... I'll a life sentence in Canada means until your heart stops beating. You will be under some form of incarceration or custody. Um, so when you are convicted of either first or second degree murder, you will receive a life sentence and they will attach a number to it. The number will be anywhere between 10, which would be the minimum, up to 25. Those numbers represent a parole eligibility date. That's all they represent. So when you get up to your 23rd year, your 25th year, whatever it is that your parole eligibility date is coming up, you can apply for parole, but parole is not a guarantee. 
Mm-hmm. It's not an automatic after 25, you're out. There's a, you have to apply, the parole board has to agree. They only agree in 30% of cases. It's very low, only three in 10. Some people don't ever apply. Mm-hmm. So they stay in jail for the rest of their life. This is what allows our Canadian criminal justice system to keep people like Paul Bernardo, uh, Clifford Olson before he died, mm-hmm. in custody for the rest of their lives. They committed heinous crimes. Bernardo was responsible for the deaths of Kristen French, Leslie Mahaffey. Mm-hmm. Clifford Olson was responsible for multiple murders of children in BC. Um, both have had parole dates come up. Both have not been provided those dates. Mm-hmm. And they continue to serve on their life sentence. If you are one of the lucky ones that gets out after your application for parole and it's granted, then you go into supervision for the rest of your life. So if you get out at 13 years, for example, and one of the conditions upon your parole board puts into place is, is that you're to stay away from drugs and alcohol. And you stay clean and sober for eight years. And then on your ninth year, the parole officer goes and finds out that you've been using drugs and alcohol. You go right back to jail to continue serving on your life sentence. It is not a guarantee once you've received that life sentence you'll ever get Mm -hmm. out of jail. No offender will just be released and not be under some sort of a community supervision. And that's what people, I think people sort of equate the number to the actual amount. I think a lot of people do say 25. They think that 25 is the... But it is actually... Unless they die before then. No, it's, they actually, they will, they will, they will die under supervision. Yeah. Whether it's in custody mm-hmm. through incarceration or out in the community under the supervision of a parole officer, they yeah. will die. The sentence only ends when. You know, it's funny. It's uh, like when I think back, like one of the motivations we've sort of just touched on the book a couple times, but one of the motivations for writing the book was um, I wanted to, it's, a, it's actually, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a book for my children. I mean, I'm glad we've had so many people read it. Yeah. But it's a book for my children. The You see there's these little butterflies through the book. And the mm-hmm. bu- butterflies represent sort of transformation. I mean, that's sort of what they look like. And for me, they're the, the lessons that come as a result of some sort of uh, thing that I was involved in, right? Yeah. And But they are the lessons of a father to the child. Oh, that's nice. And the... Um, that's on the very sort of personal level with it. And it's my written legacy to them. So that one day when I am gone, if I don't have the opportunity to meet my grandchildren, or if I meet my grandchildren and they're very young before I go, um, they will at least have something to yeah. know what I was like as a person in life. Yeah, no, that's. And uh, maybe some of my Davisms. Yeah. Or, you know idiosyncrasies uh, that come out in the book, maybe some of those will, will uh, they'll recognize them in themselves and understand where they kind of come from or why they think a certain way or what have you. Yeah. So very similarly to 
what my mom did. So I've always, yeah, maybe it's a scar, but I've come to realize that in this world, that tomorrow is never promised to any of us. So we have to take care of the things we want to today yeah. with that understanding and do the things that we want to today yeah. and not tolerate another bad day and always like look to, to try and improve things. And because of that, I also believe a lot in legacy. And um, so I've got my written legacy kind of taken care of. Now I'm in the process of trying to create other things, physical legacies like the cabin in the woods that everybody can come to at Thanksgiving every year. Um, those kinds of things. So that uh, there will always be a piece or a connection to the family that the family can always draw, kind of draw back to. Yeah. You know, that's very important to me. And uh, it all comes from this. And it all goes back to maybe some guilt uh, around missing out on things with the kids or not always being around for them. Um, you know, they're not different than almost 50% of the rest of us. Uh, but they, you know, they've, they've had to live when they were younger, they lived between two homes. And those are all the costs that come as a result of the service. In your introduction, you talk about um, some key pieces, uh, some of your sort of your best advice and, one of them is staying out of dark places keeps you safe. Yes. And I think that that's great advice for young people. I myself have a teenage stepdaughter that um, the friends and the people that you associate with are really, they shape who you, your behavior and who you become. And, and that, and um, some people just society norms just don't apply to them. That's right. I mean, I think it, I think like that little lesson, staying out of dark places will keep you safe. You can take it two ways, right? You can take it sort of like literally, like don't go down unlit dark alleys because <laughs> bad stuff will happen down there. And I learned that actually when I was in drugs and we would sometimes slip down these alleys to do some sort of a, a drug purchase or, or what have you from a target. And on occasion, one of us would get robbed, right? Um and so we always said, you know, you want to stay kind of in more well-lit areas so that we can all kind of keep an eye on each other. And uh, so literally, I mean, it's not a bad piece of advice, right? Stay in well-lit areas. Um, but the other way you can kind of view it is, is don't cheat on your taxes. Don't get yourself in this shady business deals. I mean, or do, I, I mean, I don't know, but when you, but when you, when you do do these things, you're putting yourselves into jeopardous dark places that may not keep you safe. You know, there is no, uh, there is a, there is a significant correlation. Again, this is not blaming when somebody becomes a victim of homicide, homicide, but there is a correlation with people that are homicide victims sometimes. And when you go into their lives, you can see some of the dark places they've been hanging out in. And it could be friend groups that are just not very positive, or it could be um, a relationship they shouldn't have been in, or, you know, these kinds of things, mm -hmm. right? So it's, 
Or it could be that they were involved in some sort of really shady business transaction. Um, often it's the dark places that people live in that we find our suspects hiding. Right. right. So um, it's just, it's a, it's a, I think a pretty good lesson. And you also say always leave people in a better place than you found them. And actually in your third chapter, which you call gray matter, you, you, um, you talk a bit about using discretion where you could do one thing, but you chose to do another. And you gave an example of a young 13 year old boy that was, who tragically um, died by suicide from his dad's gun, which was originally stolen. And of course it was unsecured and all that stuff. And that you could have done a number of um, charges on the father, but of course he was undergoing quite a, stressful event let's say in his life it's it do you is that an example of of some of that leaving someone in a better place or well maybe not for the father but it was for the the family that was going to be left behind if the father we lost to incarceration Mm -hmm. so this particular family was of limited means he was the main breadwinner he was for the gun crimes that you know if he was had been convicted um uh, had committed, he was looking at a mandatory minimum of three years. And uh, removing the, the breadwinner out of a home that's already just suffered the loss of a son or in a brother um, is probably maybe not the best thing. Could we do it? Yeah. Yeah. Should we do it? Right. That's where discretion comes in and a little bit of compassion. The truth is, whether he went to jail for three years or five years or whatever it was going to be, I know for a fact that today he still probably lives with that day. Yeah. And that is his punishment. Yeah. And we don't need to rub salt in those wounds. Right. And that's all that is to me, in my view. Right. Um, But we also have to also make sure that he faces some kind of consequence that will protect his family and himself and the community from him and her own guns again, because clearly he wasn't responsible with the guns that he had. So that was put into place, but we spared him the jail time. And I think that that's really, really important. Uh, That would be an example of being somebody in a better place. Mm -hmm. But I think it's just, um, it's just knowing that you, we all have the ability to do that for somebody every single day. Uh, if you haven't told your son or your daughter that you love, you love them and you don't do that every day. Mm-hmm. Today, if you did, your that interaction will be so much more lovely on the other side of it, right? Like it, yeah. you just left them in a better place. They yeah. know that you love them. You've told them that you love them. Yeah. You know, um, or they can feel it or whatever it is, right? Like, I think that we have the opportunity to do it all the time. I live in this, uh, I live in a community where there is need all around. I did this on purpose. You know, um, fentanyl, methamphetamine. Mm-hmm. It is all around me all the time. And I have always have the opportunity to come up and, meet with people that are suffering from these addictions and leave them in a better place. Costco's my friend. Yeah. You can go and you can buy a bunch of bulk food 
and take it out. And if you see somebody that needs a little bit of help or is hungry or whatever, offering that to them and a few kind words is better than just kicking them out of your, your parkade. Right. Yeah. Well, like you said, in one of the other pieces of advice, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. No, that's right. And, uh, so just because yes, technically I, you know, yeah. you're somewhere you shouldn't be or whatever. Well, I'll give you a sandwich before I send you on your way. Or right. And it makes the whole interaction so much more positive. Yeah. You don't have to worry about them coming back to break in your, you know, break your window of your vehicle. You have to worry about them coming back and peeing in your spot. Yeah. You know, yeah. it makes the interaction human yeah. and empathetic. Yeah. And they, for a moment, are not glossed over but like they are by everybody else. Yeah. They're acknowledged as that, as yeah. human beings. Somebody sees them. And I think that that's, that's so important for everybody. Everybody needs to know that they are important and that their life matters to somebody. Yeah. 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 And again, it, it comes back to if you're part of a community, these are the things that are really important. Act on the observance of the community. You don't have to be a police officer to do this. Yeah. We should all be doing it. Yeah. According to Peel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then in your fifth chapter, which is thinking from a different box, I well, thank you very much for what you say in this chapter about, well, particularly about catas- um, catastrophizing yeah. every little thing, because I'm a born warrior and I like to go to the worst case scenario, but particularly you talk about families and asking the why question when it comes to homicide. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that rather than focusing on the why to find that healing in doing good. Um, I hope that that's what our family has decided to do because there is, there's always been a part of me that would like to go to talk to Dustin in prison and say why, but as you said, he's going to mitigate his, his portion of it. I'm not going to get the answer. And even if he sat down and said, I was thinking these thoughts on that day, I would still wonder why, because it's not in my, um, right. Anything that I could ever think to do. So, I mean, here's the thing. I make that, I make that statement about understanding the why and I come come at it from a complete place of naivety on the level that I've never been a victim of violent crime so I can only make that statement from what I see successful families be able to do versus families that struggle after mm-hmm. uh, like a, a murder or a violent death um, and the ones that seem to do the best are the ones that stop fixating on the why and start focusing more on legacy and, um, um, you know, honoring through tribute or memorial or what have you, their love, their love, their loved one. Um, the people that get really consumed of why did this happen? Why did this happen? They get so buried and angry about it mm-hmm. that, um, it, it kind of takes them down too. And so, yeah, you know, I've talked to lots of bad guys over the years, and if they do end up at making admissions or even providing a full confession on what they did, it's always watered down. It's always minimized. It mm-hmm. always comes back to their drug addiction or their alcohol addiction mm-hmm. or the fact that they were abused as a child or like there's always yeah, there's always, always there's right. And I don't know that 
and, 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 and those things are all absolutely valid. That might be one of the reasons for why it happened. But ultimately, like, that might be it's in their background. But I don't know that that brings any extra satisfaction to a family. Um, and sometimes people just completely, yeah, they just they actually make up a set of facts. And they'll say, you know, well, I did this, but it was because I was defending myself. Mm-hmm. you know this kind of stuff right so I'm always just very wary of the why because the why always comes from the person that committed the crime yeah and, you're only getting their side of the story right. um, yeah 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 no I get it I get it and I think that it's also easy to want that person to suffer yes um and maybe they don't ever suffer because yeah. they're not thinking of the world the same way I like if I ever God forbid, hit someone with my car or something. I would suffer every day for the rest of my life for doing that because it's again, it's not something that I would ever want to have happen. But somebody who maybe goes ahead and murders somebody, they don't. They're not thinking the same way, so right. they're not suffering. They're not living in that same right. suffrage the way that I I would. That's right. So you're not going to get that satisfaction either. No. So you need to just move forward, I think. And. Well, you know, the, the worst part is, is that, you know, I don't know, not everybody's spiritual. I certainly feel like I'm more spiritual than I ever have been in my life. If you believe that there is a life past this, this one that we're in right now, mm-hmm. and people can connect to us through this like very thin veil or whatever you believe, right? Or they can, they can come down from heaven or wh- what, whatever it is. When you're angry and so focused on that, you will never see the little beautiful affirmations and the little beautiful positive things that messages that they're sending you to let you know that they're okay. And I think that that's, uh, uh, and so you're robbing yourself of that too. That connection that you miss so badly, it could still be around you if you weren't so angry. Again, easier said than done. And I speak on it from a place of complete naivety because I've never been there. But families that can move past anger, move past why, actually can enjoy on some level, enjoy is maybe not the right word, but they can, aspects of their life will be enriched uh, through what they find are affirmations that their loved one is still around them. Yeah. And that's really nice. Well, and I think we've really tried to focus on what would what would Taylor want and expect yeah. um, from us. Somebody once said, and I, I don't know who it was, they said anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Yeah. And and that's what it would really feel like. And I, I know when when she passed away, I, of course I had this huge interest in, in true crime and it was I really struggled with the, here I am grieving, someone I truly, truly loved. She was my godchild, and, you know, she wasn't going to be at these family dinners anymore, and it was really sad. But on the other hand, this morbid curiosity and this interest about the true crime, and um, so I had to, I actually had to go to a therapist for it. And um, she said, she's like, well, what was, you know, what was Taylor like, and what would she think? And I thought, well, she would be she would be fine with that. Yeah. So that really helped to know, to just remember what, that person was like and that they don't they don't want you to be sitting in no. and sad all the time and angry and yeah you know, so that's well, true do you guys still use lie detector tests um they so they're 
yes, they're available to us. We don't use them very often, but um, people can't. We have used a lot. Uh, we call them polygraphs. Mm-hmm. In fact, the the case that I was telling you about with the glasses, uh, that was a case where a polygraph was used. Mm-hmm. Well, my understanding is because they they've never been admissible in court, as far as I understand, right. in both Canada mm-hmm. and the U.S. But um, they're used to sort of either sort of shake up a suspect to just kind of you know sort of see if you can get any information from them, or to just eliminate and just. Yeah, and I think it's more of it's more of sort of an elimination process for us. They're difficult to um, tough to beat. Um, I'm certainly not a polygraphist that I would be completely irresponsible to even try to talk about how effective they are and things. But I can tell you that within the last four years, and I think I'm a very accomplished. I think I can t- spin a pretty good story from all of my yeah. undercover work. And, sure. Um, I tried to beat it, and I couldn't. You couldn't? No. I didn't huh. close. Do you find now, over your years of experience, that you, you are your own lie detector? Like, you can see it? No, I can't. I mean, you can sometimes, right? There are yeah. telltale signs of somebody that, you know, is... The bad liars, yeah. Or responsible for something. Yeah. Um, if you want to appear guilty, come into an interview room and put your head down on the table and fall asleep. Right? That's a, I mean, that's a tactic that some will take to not talk to us. Mm. But it speaks volumes in terms yeah. of their in, involvement in a file. Yeah. Uh, because nobody in their right mind is going to come in and sleep if they've been arrested for murder. But that happens lots. Um, the, you know what? I've been tricked so many times. Year, years ago, I was involved in a case where I interviewed a guy and I came out of the interview and I had said his girlfriend was missing. And I had said, ah, oh, well, I said, uh, I don't know. I don't think this guy has anything to do with this. I, I, we need to go back into her background again and start looking into some of these other things. And a year later, we were moving her body from a, a sarcophagus in a basement, you know, his basement. So um, <laughs> it's, you know, for those that can say that they can absolutely tell, they're, they're, uh, they're fooling themselves. A huge thank you to Dave Sweet and the entire team at the Calgary Police Service for their work and commitment to the community. We have an incredible team of dedicated detectives working homicide in our city who genuinely care about the families that they try to find answers and justice for. They have a very high solve rate and we are so lucky to have the team that we do. And to Dave, thank you for your time and your perspectives that you shared, for the community involvement that you've demonstrated. I really enjoyed our conversation and seeing the sanctuary of a home that you've created. I am deeply honored to have spent a bit of time in your presence and for your openness and willingness to share your story. I will be back next week with a regular episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.